1: health and agriculture, and find food truth. And today, I am delighted and honored to welcome Dr. Seth Holmes. Dr. Holmes is a cultural and medical anthropologist and physician whose work focuses broadly on social hierarchies, health disparities, and the ways in which perceptions of social difference naturalize and normalize these inequalities. He is based at the University of California, Berkeley, in the School of Public Health. I became interested in Dr. Holmes' work because of the book we're going to be talking about today titled Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. And basically what this book is, is an ethnographic witness to the everyday lives and suffering of Mexican migrant workers. Now, Dr. Holmes, in order to write this book, he uncovered how market forces anti-immigrant sentiment and racism undermine health and health care. Most interestingly, he has trekked illegally through the desert border into Arizona. He has been jailed. He has conducted interviews with Border Patrol agents, local residents, and armed vigilantes in the borderlands. He has lived with indigenous Mexican families. He has worked in farm labor camps in the United States, planted and harvested corn, picked strawberries, accompanied sick workers to clinics and hospitals, participated in healing rituals, and mourned at funerals for friends. Without further ado, welcome, Dr. Holmes.
0: Thank you very much for having me on Food Sleuth Radio.
1: Well, as a dietitian, I'm very interested in this book because, as you know, you're a physician. We both recommend that people eat more fresh fruit. But there's a wonderful Vietnamese quote that says, when eating a fruit, think of the person who planted the tree. And I would like to extend that to think of the hands that picked that fruit. So what led you as a physician who could have a very comfortable practice and live in a cushy neighborhood to go down into Mexico to migrate across the border and to live in these farm labor camps?
0: I can answer that on two levels. One level is that as a kid growing up in Washington State in a relatively privileged semi-urban, semi-suburban neighborhood, My parents wanted me and my brothers to grow up with more awareness about the rest of the world, more awareness about inequalities in our own country and in the world. And they took us to volunteer a couple weeks each summer, starting, I think, when I was a first grader in an orphanage in southern Mexico. And so I, as a kid, became friends with Mexican orphans In this orphanage, I wasn't really volunteering. I was just playing with my friends. I think there's a way that I started becoming an anthropologist when I was a kid, recognizing the ways in which politics and economics and racism and social inequalities and global inequalities produced the different lives and the different realities that my friends in Mexico in an orphanage had compared to the life and reality that I had. Then as a graduate student in anthropology at UC Berkeley and as a medical student at UC San Francisco, I was very interested in the relationship between the United States and Mexico, political relationship, economic relationship, and the ways in which these immigrants who come from Mexico are simultaneously desired by our economy to work for us and stigmatized and excluded to try to keep them out by our laws and our policies and vigilantes and Border Patrol and what the experience of that duality might be for the people who live it the people who as you mentioned are behind the produce the fresh fruit and vegetables that I as a medical student at the time and as a physician now counsel people to eat more of and how that relationship between the U.S. and Mexico also relates to the relationship between us who eat the produce and the people who pick it.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting. I had a friend who used to be at the University of Missouri in rural sociology, actually, who told me that it's almost like we have a sign on the border that says both help wanted as well as keep out. And with all of the praise that we give the benefits of fruits and vegetables, it is alarming to me that we don't step back as a society and say thank you to these people who are performing backbreaking work, as you describe in the book, and we'll get into. you know, Why are we not respecting these individuals and treating them with a level of dignity that I don't see exhibited?
0: That's correct. That's an important part of what I was trying to get at in the book. How can the people who provide us with the food we eat also be one of the largest groups of people who can't afford to have enough food for themselves and their families. There was a recent study published in the American Journal of Public Health of farm workers in Georgia that showed that the majority of farm workers in Georgia in the last month have not had enough food for themselves and their families. The people who provide us with food themselves are experiencing what we call food insecurity. And that duality, that irony is both powerful and troubling. How is it that we as a society have come to be okay with the ways that these people who are providing us with a lot of our food are treated and how they have to cross a border that's very dangerous? It's a troubling irony, and that's part of what I was trying to figure out.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, it's wonderful that you've combined your studies of both anthropology and medicine together because I think that makes you a more powerful care provider. I think we need to just step back for a moment. I mentioned that your book, Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States, is an ethnographic witness to the everyday lives and suffering of Mexican migrants. What is an ethnographic piece of work? What is that field of study?
0: So as an anthropologist, unlike a lot of other kinds of researchers, Instead of doing only observation, either through surveys or interviews or sitting and taking notes about what's going on, as an anthropologist or an ethnographer, I do the classic research method called participant observation. So I do interviews and I do observations taking notes on what I see around me, but I also participate in that world, in that scene, in those phenomena myself. There's a way that I learn things through my eyes and through my field notes and through the responses people give me in interviews, but there's also ways that I learn things through my own body, through my own experiences crossing the border, living in a labor camp, picking strawberries myself, and I try to put all that information together from my body, from my notes, from my observations to understand as well as possible the inequalities that are part of our food system and our immigration system and, on some level, our Western world.
1: And I would think that each participant observer might bring a different perspective to the situation. I mean, I think that anybody crossing the border, as you describe in the book, would experience the same level of fear and suffering as you describe. But the observations are very different, and you talk about that a little bit in your book, where You might come to a place with a higher level of compassion than someone else who, say, might look at individuals, perhaps they have a different skin color, perhaps they're of a different height, who may look at different individuals and saying, you're in this plight because of your own actions. You know, it's your own fault that you are in this place in the world.
0: Right. There's a way that my training in the social sciences brings me to really understand or see or try to understand the linkages between the everyday lives of individual human beings whether they're the farm owners or the supervisors on the farm or the doctors and nurses in the migrant clinic or the farm workers themselves and you know linkages between their everyday lives and the global economy global politics global inequalities and racisms what we would say in the social sciences what we might call macro structures, and then the kind of more micro individual experiences and in lives, how those things are linked to each other. So that's something that I try to do in the book, and that's something that I'm trained to do as a social scientist, as an anthropologist, is to understand the individual experiences of those large, big structures and how they relate to each other.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I was just at a book lecture where the author shared something that I thought was very poignant and important. And he said, books are a lot of work. There isn't a lot of money involved generally in writing them, but they start a conversation. And I think that your book starts a very important conversation. And as I was going through it, I have a habit of jumping around books. But I think for the sake of our listeners, we should probably start at the beginning. And I would like for you to just describe a little bit about your trip through the desert, what it was like to go down to Mexico and travel with a group of people on a bus for many hours. What was that experience like? I just want to help people get into your shoes for a moment.
0: That chapter, in some ways, was fun to write, ironically, because I decided to write it back and forth between relatively raw notes that I took During the crossing itself and then stepping back with a different author's voice and analyzing how that experience of the border crossing relates to border policies, immigration policies, economic policies, and then going back to the raw field notes and the experience. In terms of what it was actually like, in lots of ways, I can't think of a better word than to say it was rather horrifying. It was terrifying starting in southern Mexico and riding a bus to the border. We stopped twice a day to refuel the bus and get food, but we didn't sleep at night anywhere. So by the time we arrived at the border, we were pretty exhausted, our bodies physically exhausted. In the little border town on the Mexican side, the town was pretty clearly set up for people crossing the border. There were Lots of money changing, you know, Western Union and other kinds of operations. There were grocery stores that had a lot of water and Gatorade and everything felt set up for people getting ready to cross the border and then crossing the border itself through the desert, hiking, not using a flashlight because you don't want to be seen and crashing into cacti at some points, hearing rattlesnakes at some points seeing other people off in the distance and not knowing if they're robbers who want to assault you because they know that you have a lot of cash to pay for food and rides and the border crossing guide, or if they might be people crossing the border themselves or if they might be border patrol agents who want to put you in jail and give you a criminal record. There's a lot of anxiety and fear, and as some recent studies have shown, the number of people dying in the border desert has increased over the last 20 years at the same time that the number of people trying to cross overall has decreased. So the risk of death for each individual who's crossing has gone up significantly, and it was definitely a scary, risky experience.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you're right, and I have to just share this with our listeners, that during the first year of my field work, Over 500 people died in the Tucson sector of the border alone. Most died of heat stroke and dehydration and some from direct violence. And you talk a little bit about the kinds of violent acts that many of these people endure. And the question here, of course, is, is it worth risking your life? And the other piece of the question that I think needs to be asked is, Everything is so clearly and obviously set up for border crossers in this town. I wonder to myself why the whole operation hasn't been shut down by the U.S. Border Patrol if their primary goal is really to stop undocumented entry. So why are they coming? Why are they risking their lives?
0: I was interested especially in that question, is it worth worth risking your life? because one of the people I was crossing with and I went to the cathedral in the town right on the border, and there were posters all throughout the cathedral of different risks. You know, they they were hand-painted posters of a rattlesnake or a scorpion or someone kind of dying under a bright sun, and then it would say in Spanish, you know, is it worth risking your life? And when I first thought about that question, it seemed to me the answer has got to be yes, it's worth risking your life because so many people are doing it each year or trying to do it. But then as I thought more about that and went through the border crossing myself and interviewed a lot of the migrant farm workers who had crossed the border, I realized that they didn't experience it as a choice themselves. They never talked about weighing the pros and cons of crossing They never talked about making their life a better life and choosing to do that. When they spoke about it, they spoke about it as something they were forced to do, that they had no other option but to cross the border. So I started to think more about that in relation to that question, is it worth risking your life? And started to learn more about how the North American Free Trade Agreement, for example, had really negatively affected the everyday lives of Native Mexicans in the state of Oaxaca and the state of Guerrero and the state of Chiapas and how a lot of Native Mexicans who had family farms ended up having to leave their family farms in order to cross the border and come to the U.S. to work on our farms, in essence, so that they and their families could have the possibility of surviving. And a lot of that related to the fact that the North American Free Trade Agreement made it illegal for Mexico to have tariffs or taxes on U.S.-grown products, including corn. But it didn't make it illegal for the U.S. to have an inverse tariff, which we call a subsidy, on those same products, such that since NAFTA was signed in 1994, the U.S. has increased farm subsidies for corn by over 300%. And now, largely corporate-grown corn in the U.S. undersells the locally grown corn in the towns nearby, the places where the people I got to know lived, such that they couldn't sell their corn anymore, and therefore they couldn't afford to buy a uniform for their kids to go to school, even though school was free, and they couldn't afford to pay for electricity or any certain kinds of foods that they couldn't grow, and essentially felt like they were forced to come to the U.S. because of that.
1: Hmm. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Seth Holmes. He is a cultural and medical anthropologist and a physician, and we're speaking about his terrific book called Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, Migrant Farm Workers in the United States. Well, you've crossed the border. Is there anything else you want to say about that harrowing experience? Perhaps the situation crossing the desert itself? Was there fear of lack of water? I'm, I'm assuming Anything else about that experience before we get to the fruit-picking days themselves?
0: Well, I think in lots of ways, there are a lot of forms of fear and violence that one experiences on the border, and I can mostly speak for myself, and I can speak maybe a little bit about what I heard through interviews and saw, but some of that violence and fear is related to being caught by the Border Patrol and having to maybe do the whole thing again or spend time in jail, some of that is related to rattlesnakes and scorpions and cacti. Some of it's related to the very real robberies and assaults and violence and rape that happens in the borderlands, either by Mexican robbers who want money, American robbers who want money, or American vigilantes, or in some interviews due to violence from Border Patrol agents themselves. But in certain ways, the evidence that we see shows us that most people who die in the border die simply of heat stroke, stroke, sunstroke, dehydration, and all of us brought gallons of water and Pedialyte or Gatorade with us in our bags, but it's hard to bring enough water for the unknowns. If you are able to hike straight through the desert and nothing goes wrong and no one gets bit by a rattlesnake or hurt by a cactus or robbed, then people tend to be all right. But if, if you get lost or it's hotter than usual or someone gets sick and you have to take extra time, there's no, it's hard to have, you know, you can't plan for that. And you, you may end up being in very critical danger because you don't have enough water very dry and hot and you're hiking you know as fast as you can so you end up drinking through a fair amount of water and that's the most common way that people die not having enough water in the midst of the heat
1: Mm -hmm.
0: so I'm not sure what else to talk about related to it it's an experience that I learned a lot from and I don't think I would ever want to do it again
1: yeah all right so you get over the border. And what happens next? How do you get from the desert to your place of employment?
0: Mm -hmm. So A lot of people who I came with had worked before on the same farms in past years, and they had gone back to their home village to help with harvesting corn and planting corn and to participate in the town's kind of annual festival and to be home for Christmas with their relatives. And then they came back in the spring or in the late winter to come back to the U.S. to work on farms that they'd worked on in the past. So usually they either simply took a bus or had a family member who had a car, a relative, come pick them up. And then they went back to the the same farms where they'd worked in the past and did the same pruning of grapes or picking strawberries and blueberries and moved into labor camps that they had usually lived in in the past. So a lot of people were very much needed by those farms in the U.S. Their labor was needed, and they were in some ways almost expected to come back again.
1: But the produce industry doesn't make it easy for them.
0: That's an interesting point. There's an article that was actually published in 1976 by Michael Borovoy, who's a sociologist at Berkeley, trying to understand at that point labor migration, and it's Still, a really helpful article, I think, today. He argues that the economic need for immigrant labor combined with the legal and political exclusion, in essence, what you said about farms and other industries saying essentially saying, Come here, we want to employ you, we need you because we don't have enough workers who are willing to take these jobs. But then the law and politics saying, stay out, we don't want you, you don't belong here, in essence develops this system in which the migrant laborer is exploited even more than they otherwise could be. Because they tend to come to the U.S. only during the years in which they are able-bodied workers. And Mexico and their family in Mexico and their farms in Mexico tend to pay for their childhood, their education, their growing up. And then when farm workers become injured, which happens a lot, or become disabled due to the difficulty of working in agriculture, which is a very hard job, most of them return to their home villages in Mexico, most of the people I know, and are, again, taken care of by their families and by the Mexican government. So, in essence, the U.S. government and U.S. society benefits from the work of these people providing us with food, fruit and vegetables, having taxes taken out of their paychecks every two weeks, um, them paying sales tax, etc. But then when they're young and they're not working or when they're older or injured and not working – they tend to be taken care of and paid for by either their family or relatives or the Mexican government. So it's a this duality of the economic need and the legal exclusion is felt strongly by these individual people, by their bodies, by their health, by where they are when they're sick and who takes care of them.
1: Well, there are many aspects of the healthcare system that I had hoped we might get into. I think I'm just going to have to have you come back to talk about that whole level of how individuals are cared for when they are not speaking the same language or don't quite understand how to communicate what they're experiencing. But for the sake of my own professional colleagues here, we are told, I want you to know, by the produce industry that just having a little bit of pesticide exposure, you know, having a little bit of pesticide residue on your fruits and vegetables is okay. It's more important that we eat plenty of these fruits and vegetables. And I always try to encourage consumers to think beyond their plate, to think beyond their own piece of fruit, and to think about the individuals working in the fields who are being exposed to these hazardous compounds, the pesticides and herbicides. Can you talk a little bit about farm worker exposure to these toxins as a physician? Mm -hmm.
0: Well, as a physician and anthropologist, I'll say that on the farm where I worked and in most farms that I've observed, farm workers are racing against the clock. They're trying to pick as much as they possibly can each hour, first of all, to support their family, both in the U.S., whoever's with them, and back in Mexico to send money back. But they're also racing the clock in a sense because if they don't pick a minimum weight of berries that day, they're often fired. And if they're fired, then that means they have to move out of the labor camp because they're no longer employees or laborers. So it's a very big deal. Most farm workers who I've observed, including myself while I was picking, didn't take the time to go walk to a handwashing station Before eating any food that they might eat while they're picking, because they're worried they might not pick the minimum weight and then they might be fired, and because they usually don't have lunch breaks or bathroom breaks. So oftentimes they'll pick with their bare hands as fast as they can, getting strawberry juices, which include pesticide residues, on their hands in a way that my hands would be stained for most of the next day, each time I picked. So I knew that on some level, the pesticide residues were getting inside my skin just like the color was, but I didn't really have time to, for example, before eating or to to wash my hands and try to get rid of that. And I didn't want to wear latex gloves or plastic gloves because if you think about what happens to your skin after you're in the bathtub for 20 minutes or 30 minutes, how it gets porous and kind of leaky and wrinkly. If you imagined wearing plastic gloves all day long in the heat while you're working and having your hands be wet and warm all day long, it would essentially be, you know, eight hours or 12 hours of that same kind of situation. And a lot of people's skin would break out or almost decompose or something if they did that. So most of us, picked the berries with our bare hands, had our hands stained a different color, knew that pesticide residue was involved, but also didn't really have time or a good means to change that. Farm that I worked on in Washington State, interestingly, had some fields that were sold under an organic label and didn't use pesticides and some that were sold under a traditional label and did have pesticides. So there are some farm workers who work with roughly the same conditions in, ter- in terms of their working conditions, but they won't have the pesticides involved.
1: Well, Dr. Holmes, unfortunately, we're going to have to end this part of our conversation, but I would like to have you come back because there's so much more about this book that I want you to cover. So I hope you'll do that with me. But I want to thank you and I want to let our listeners know that we have been speaking with Dr. Seth Holmes, a cultural and medical anthropologist and a physician. We have been speaking about his book called Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies: Migrant Farmworkers in the United States. We'll provide a link to that and then we'll also have to have you back to do part 2. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Dr. Holmes, I can't thank you enough for your work, your compassion, and for providing this view of our food system. Thank you. Thank you for having me on Food Sleuth Radio.